Attackers are only getting more proficient, so how can you proactively adapt your cybersecurity strategy? Core Security by Fortra helps you uncover and prioritize the risks that pose the biggest threat to your organization. Core Impact is a penetration testing tool that safely finds and exploits vulnerabilities using the same techniques as attackers. You can conduct advanced pen tests with ease using certified exploits and automations. Take your engagements even further by pairing with our additional red teaming tools from Cobalt Strike and Outflank. Learn more at securityweekly.com forward slash Fortra Core Security. Business Security Weekly is recorded on Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Each week, we address the challenges facing CISOs through our guest interviews, including former and active CISOs. Our news segment is focused on leadership and communication to better help security leaders translate and communicate security risks into business risks. Jason Albuquerque, Ben Carr, Tyler Robinson, and others add their expertise to the conversation. I'm Matt Alderman, and I hope you search for Business Security Weekly in your favorite podcast catcher and subscribe to download our latest content. Welcome back to Enterprise Security Weekly. Join our Discord channel to chat with our hosts, ask questions, customize live stream alerts, and more. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash Discord to receive an invite. And also, if you chat on Discord or YouTube or any of our live platforms, we'll see it in the Discord. Uh, we've got a Sam was uh, set up this cool little bot that uh, synchronizes the messages. When I reply in Discord, you also see it on on YouTube. So that's it's pretty handy. We no longer have to monitor four different live stream platforms simultaneously while we do the, the show. All right. So for our second interview today uh, on this AI special, Alex Babin joins us today to talk about enabling generative AI in the enterprise while mitigating the most common risks. Alex is the co-founder and CEO of Zero Systems, a VC-backed AI startup headquartered in Silicon Valley. Alex has over 20 years of experience in the automotive, SaaS, and AI industries. And his first tech startup was a hybrid vehicle company. He's an expert on generative AI and large language models, especially focused on enterprise use cases. Welcome to the show, Alex. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Absolutely. And, you know, I, th I think it's a, it's a good point to make that um, you don't have a cybersecurity background. This isn't a cybersecurity company. But, you know, the reason I invited you on is, and this is something I harp on a lot on this show, is we have to understand the changes in technology, how the enterprise is going gonna, is gonna to change as a result of new technology before we can understand what our jobs are, uh, you know, as security practitioners. That's you're absolutely correct. And I'm not a um, security professional, but what we see right now happening is that uh, proliferation of those new AI technologies makes every person uh, involved in a security, basically, because it democratizes the good in a bad way, um, the way how security can be um, compromised, but also how it can be um, enhanced. So... I would say we're in a pivotal moment right now where security is a concern of everyone. Definitely. So, yes, yeah, security and privacy, I would say. Uh, we talked a lot about privacy towards the end of the last conversation. But for some context here, uh, help us understand what your what your company does in relation to AI and, and, and just what it does in general. You know, I think it'll, it'll help us uh, w once we get into the more general uh, questions. 
Absolutely. We've been involved into generative AI and AI in general um, uh, for quite some time. And what Zero is doing is Zero is a operating and orchestrating system to run, deploy, and maintain uh, and create, of course, AI applications for enterprises. And a very, um, very important differentiator for whatever we do is that we make AI run inside security perimeter. Because we know right now that a lot of AI systems, they are outside of security perimeter. You have to give up your privacy, your security in order to get those new AI technologies. We take a different approach. And we've been uh, adamant uh, that AI needs to be brought in where the data is, but not the other way around. So everything we do is built on top of that. Yeah, and, and is this um, so? Is this a product um, you know that's pre-built that you drop in, or you know, it seems seems like uh, there's there's a lot of customization involved. Like you're building more of like a like a turnkey uh, system for customers based on on their their needs, right? Think of it as more of a set of Lego blocks. The AI engine uh, of ours called Hercules. Uh, allows to quickly assemble those AI applications to attack various tasks uh, or solve various problems. And of course, those building blocks, they consist of LLMs and ethical walls and different modules that then you can combine uh, and set up quickly in under eight or six weeks um, for, for an organization. So think of it more of a Lego blocks, like building blocks and framework that allows fast creation uh, of AI applications uh, using the state-of-the-art technologies and components that are already available. And in the previous conversation, one of our top concerns is the data going into uh, some of these models, you know, that some of these LLMs are, are going to be trained on, uh, or, or even the fine-tuning data that, that goes into them. Uh, I understand you do something around data as well, correct? Yes, absolutely. So you can't train the model and um, um, expect it to be reliable and dependable if you put the garbage in. Um, and uh, because garbage in, garbage out. That's what we see with large language models uh, because they train on internet size of uh, data. And if you train something on internet size, you, you get at the end, you get internet uh, size of biases and the quality. And that's where hallucination is coming from. Um, but if we talk about enterprises, they need to focus on high reliability, and that means the data that goes in into the model or into the process itself should be reliable, it should be labeled. But we know that 80% of the corporate data is unstructured. It's sitting on shared drives and in, in inboxes on exchange servers and other systems, and it's absolutely unstructured. So in order to get high uh, quality output, you need to structure that data first. And we have our own model, large language model, that designed for that specific uh, task. It's part of our engine, Hercules, and it does systematic data labeling, taking this unstructured data, uh, helping to match it with ontology, and then create metadata around it to actually then to be able to fit it into the models. Well, and certainly doing that, you know, I think that's been a challenge for a lot of companies, classifying data um, you know, and understanding their data flows, things like that. You know, you, you mentioned the the mess that the enterprise tends to be with data saved all over the place and, and living all over the place. Um, 
you know, that, that sounds like it would have benefits far beyond just the work that you're doing, you know, uh, certainly understanding, uh, you know, what data is where and, and how it's, how it's used. It sounds like this could actually clean up a lot of processes, uh, you know, like, like that's a side benefit, right? Exactly, and security part of it. So if you uh, if you know where your data is and you know what's inside that data, let's say those files, they might be uh, there might be um, PII personal identifiable information uh, or other type of information uh, stored there, and you don't know what shared drive it is on and uh, who has access. That creates a security risk. Of course, it's not just for uh, being fed into LLM or an automation process. It's about knowing where your data is and uh, then taking action based on that. We have a client who who is sitting on enormous amount of unstructured data, uh, and it's very sensitive. It's not even their data. That's the data of their customers. And mm-hmm. the security breach and um, access to that data might create a lot of uh, risks for, for this client. And uh, making sure the data is structured on a systematic uh, way, in a systematic way, not kind of a project-based, is critical. And what I see, what I've seen in the past, is a lot of companies, they're doing it just, uh, not systematically, but sometimes like uh, a project-based, and then they drop the initiative, and then the data piles up again. Um, yeah. uh, we call it data swamp, and they ask deep in alligators at the end. <laughs> I love that. Uh, data lakes, you've got a data swamp instead of a data lake, right? <laughs> Exactly. Um, so I think another thing that might help us with context here um, it, it are some examples of use cases. What what kind of workflows uh, are, are do customers want to build with this technology? Like like the one I tend to throw out there, you know, it seems to me like uh, product support and customer support, you know, stuff that's already like humans are already following, you know basically some some kind of chart some kind of pre-written script right you know it, like it, it seems super easy to replace with an llm but uh, i'm curious what what kind of um use cases you're building for what what these workflows um, look like actually let's start from the top uh not to talk about specific prod process or specific uh um, task that needs to be automated. We'll get to that. But let's separate the old world and the new world that is coming right now. And in an old world, you have software. And software has typically this path that that's kind of a breadcrumbs defined of how you want people to perform specific tasks or uh, work and how it can be done. And you can't move left or right. You have to follow that path. There's interface, there's there's scripts, there's stuff built in. They have to follow. And there is new way of uh, working with with data, with software is coming. And it's more of a question-based or action-based. When with LLM, you can basically ask a system to do anything. You can tell it to do anything you want. And there is no one best way to do things. For one person, uh, that might be uh, path number one, and for another person, might be path number two. So it's absolutely flexible. That gives almost unlimited possibilities. And in many cases, those legacy systems built on SAP, Salesforce, anything, any software you can think about that that was built the old way becomes glorified database. Because if you can tell AI agent 
what to do. And it goes and figures out how to do it the best possible way in the shortest period of time and just reports to you what has been done. That's the new way of working with software. And getting to the processes itself and what is the low-hanging fruit in here, it can be anything. And we see examples with our clients when there is a, a, let's say, in procurement, a legacy system being set up and another legacy system being set up. And the process, uh, let's say, buying something or purchasing something for a company starts in one process and ends up in another, uh, in, uh, starts in one system and ends up in uh, in another system. But those systems are not connected even. They are legacy homegrown systems. So having something that works on behalf of a um, knowledge worker or a user and does the work without the user even have to go into the system, that's a low, such a low-hanging fruit, and that's where AI and LLMs can really, really help. Yeah, uh, Tyler, Sean, I, I want to let you guys jump in with uh, questions if you need to here. But yeah, it, it, it sounds... You know, to respond to what what you're saying there, it sounds almost like uh, a lot of UI UX, traditional software UI UX just goes away and is replaced by a chatbot. Exactly. Uh, either chatbot or being done proactively. That's another um, component that is not being, being um, uh, kind of not getting enough attention uh, right now, but it will in the future. So a lot of those processes can be triggered uh, by uh, proactively triggered um, and send a signal to AI to do something um, proactively. And in this case, it's basically learned by example. If AI agent supervises and sees how human does something, and then at some point saying, now I have enough information to replicate this process for you. Do you want me to step in and do it for you? Uh, and in 90% of the cases, the knowledge worker would be saying, yes, of course, because I don't want to do it myself. Uh, and this case, pattern recognition and proactive assistant is, assistant, assistance is going to be pretty big part of uh, everyday workflows for knowledge workers. So you were talking okay. earlier about uh, loading data into the uh, AI and certainly concerns about loading sensitive data into it and, and where does that go? Uh, one of the toughest problems any organization has is identifying where their sensitive data is located. And now these same companies are loading corporate documents that are sensitive into the AI systems. How can they best understand the potential exposure of these actions? And is there a way that AI can actually help solve this issue of understanding where these sensitive documents are through, you know, some sort of various actions or workflow that can be done within their environment? That's a very good question. And actually, the answer is yes. And um, a lot of the systems that are being set up, organizations setting up in, in place, to actually attack this problem, they are kind of centralized. We believe that the data should be processed and analyzed at the point of ingestion, where the data leaves, on people's computers, on shared drives. Um, uh, and that gives a lot more opportunities to actually stop uh, the data from being sent somewhere where that data shouldn't be sent or actually uh, get more metadata at lower cost for an organization. I mean, this data labeling at a lower cost, using even CPUs for processing this data, not sending the data into, into the cloud and using GPUs to, to process it. So there are so many opportunities, but the, the answer here is process the data where it sits. Don't move it around. 
Um, and that gives uh, less latency and uh, more processing opportunities and more metadata. We, on top of which you can already build uh, policies and enforce those policies later. Okay, now that, that makes a lot of sense. And certainly with with uh, what we're talking about is ultimately and an your goal of your company is to help improve and, and enable employees and companies to be more productive. Uh, we've seen the benefits of AI already with, with some of the, the chat systems, ChatGPT, BARD, Copilot from Microsoft and others. How can companies best balance the use of their AI with their existing employees? And the follow-up of that is how can companies leverage AI to improve that uh, employee productivity instead of just replacing people with AI systems? Uh, it's a great question. I do not believe AI will replace people. I, re I, be I think AI will replace people who are not using AI. Um, the same way computers replace typewriters, right? And uh, in the... Uh, uh, in the future, that will be replaced by something else. So organizations, when they look at AI, and right now we're at the very early stage um, of this Cambrian explosion, as I call it, of AI, generative AI, when organizations look at it, they don't actually care if it's AI, black magic, or voodoo. They care about ROI. Sometimes they've been dragged into this AI kind of a frenzy and... Uh, um, popular things that they just can want to throw at. If you if you look at how uh, companies are talking during the um, earning calls and talking to journalists about AI, they try to squeeze a word AI everywhere possible. But when it gets down to the uh, level of now let's put it into production, that's where they hit the wall. Because you can easily prototype things with ChatGPT. Literally, easily. You can do stuff with open source models and you can see how they can improve your processes. But when it gets down to the real production inside security perimeter with high reliability, dependability, that's where the problem starts uh, uh, popping up like mushrooms after the rain. I keep calling it like as an analogy, a metaphor. We are at the stage of brother's right first flight AI. We're in the air, we're flying 300 yards, amazing achievement. But enterprises, they don't need a paper plane made out of dried wood and duct tape and, and sticks. They need Boeing 777, reliable, uh, effective, uh, and with all infrastructure, pump, uh, plumbing and fittings and everything, right? So, and, and we're still not yet there. We, we're getting there. And a lot of companies going to be uh, showing uh, showing up in the market that will do exactly this. They'll take what is available in the market, put it together, and make it reliable, dependable. And organizations will stop thinking about AI as a silver bullet, and will start looking at hey, what we can do right now to get maximum ROI from uh, from those AI tools. So Adrian mentioned what is the low hanging fruit here, and what we can attack first, second, and third. Yeah, yeah, which so, leads. Sorry, go ahead, Arjun. All right, so th this sort of leads to the question of what are those areas within the enterprise that that you feel AI today can help solve those problems, sort of that that big be big uh, best bang for the buck, and then mm -hmm. in the near future, the next year or two, what are the sort of those areas as this kind of expands beyond more of this sort of chat model or or relational model that we're seeing right now, where it can provide context around certain documents or certain situations. Mm -hmm. Great question. So I would say 
the usual suspect would be a process that consumes unproportionately a lot of time. So, and the best example is a content generation, of course, because that's what every everyone is started uh, doing when they uh, first um, tried ChatGPT. We know how long it takes to create a content, to write an email, to write an article, a blog post. But when you can throw something into a system and say, hey, this is a prompt, this is this is my idea, unfold it for me into much bigger, uh, bigger text, bigger piece of content. And you have it like in three seconds, and then you can spend less time polishing it and you have the final product uh, faster. That's the very obvious uh, thing. And it's kind of a generative AI when something is generated from uh, nothing or small piece, there is a big portion generated. But the future, I believe, in more of a synthetic AI, where things are being, what's synthesis AI, when things are being synthesized into synthetic thing, and there might be enormous amount of information or data, and you need insight. And you need insight that you can take action uh, up on. So in this case, that insight might be much more available. Decision may be, can be made, uh, which is might be very available for the business. And we're going to be through that transition. It's not going to be always this or that. It's going to be combination. Uh, but usual suspects, of course, right now, the processes that consume enormous amount of time, especially in organizations where knowledge workers, um, knowledge workers part is pretty significant, like uh, professional services, financial services, healthcare, and so on and so forth. Uh, in this case, AI could really help shorten the, uh, the, the processes time and help knowledge workers to produce more with less. Yeah, so so one one question I had, you know, talking about how people are going to use this, especially uh, one thing I've been wondering about uh, in, in the previous conversation, you know, we, we were kind of comparing um, LLMs, you know, chatting with an LLM to chatting with a voice assistant and how painful it can be to chat with a with a voice assistant because it has much stricter syntax and you have to learn that syntax to be able to get it to do the things that you want to do. Sometimes you're lucky and the first time you, you ask your Siri or Google Home something, it, it understands the answer uh, and, and sometimes not. Uh, so certainly it's easier to do this uh, with the LLMs that, that we have experience with the, the BARDs and the chat GPTs. But prompt engineering has very quickly become, it seems, a, a valuable skill to the point where there's prompt marketplaces where you can spend mm -hmm. money that other people have come up with. So my question is, how important a skill is that going to be for, for people using AI in the enterprise, will you have, will we see dedicated roles uh, where, where all people do is, is come up with prompts and maybe train internal employees on it? Or is it more like email where everybody needs to know, is going to need to know a, a little bit about writing prompts to get the most out of these, these systems? I think it's going to evolve right now. Prompt is critically, ability to create the right prompt is critically important if you want to get um, the right output. But prompts are getting better uh, and the system's getting better. Uh, remember like in uh, like 30 years ago when there was a job description or job posting, it was a line, 
uh, knowledge of computers is required, right? Now, no one is even putting in there because, like, it's it's obvious. You have to know how to use modern technologies to be able to be successful uh, in your job. Um, so at some point, that kind of a, be a commodity, uh, and people just naturally know how to do that, especially considering how easy it is and how, how much more natural it is to how we communicate between ourselves and uh, it's a natural evolution from command line to graphic interface, voice, and now basically natural language uh, conversation. So I'm not concerned about kind of a, this new thing as a prompt engineering. I'm actually more concerned about another thing that not a lot of people think uh, about. Uh, prompts are very flexible way of accessing um, large language models. And if we compare it with typically API, API is very strict, and you know what the output would be. Uh, and right. you send the API call, and you get the, the output back. So you can rely on it. That will be dependable and reliable, and next time you'll get the same um, predictable result. But when you're sending a prompt to LLM, and something changed on the LLM side, it has been updated, or been retrained, or new corpus of data has been uh, fed in, and what prompt you use today might not work tomorrow, might give you absolutely different answer. Or So when you build dependable systems and reliable systems for enterprises, you have to take this into consideration, especially when building complex systems. And sometimes people think that, well, the same prompt will give me the same result ever. No. And that is a, another risk factor that uh, enterprises should uh, take into consideration when putting those LLMs in place. Yeah, yeah, definitely, and it's um, yeah, it's it's funny. We're we're talking about. Uh, I actually automated uh, the first thing with ChatGPT Chat GPT just yesterday. Um, you know, and it, it it was interesting because the flexibility of the large language model really helped me out. Because what I wanted to do, I play, and this is a stupid example. I'm sorry, but it's it's the example I've got. But I play trivia every Tuesday. And we get basically two hints every Tuesday. They, they post an image on social media and with no context, and that image is, is uh, a clue to one of the questions that we're going to have. And, uh, and then we know there's going to be a question about this day in history. Uh, and, and so the first one I tried to automate was this day in history. And I found I was using uh, Zapier. And uh, when putting that together, I wanted to, it to run this every Tuesday at 3 p.m. So I have a few hours to look at it, and it's going to text me the answer. And I'm going to ask ChatGPT, you know, what happened this day in history? We've been really successful using ChatGPT with, with this question. 100% uh, success rate uh, every time we've used it, it. It gives us like six bullet points, and one of them is always the answer. So, so I want to keep using this. And and Zapier will only give me the date in either June, you know, month, day, 2023, or I can get the individual month number and day number, but I can't I can't just say June 6th, basically. So I have to say the sixth month and the seventh day. And like the prompt looked really ugly, but ChatGPT had no problem figuring it out. <laughs> And and if it were strict like an API, I kind of would have been screwed there. Like like the the input yep. and and the output from 
my, my first step of that automation task wouldn't have lined up with the output from the second day because I, I didn't want 2023 because it's this yep. day in history. It's just the month and the day. So it's uh, it was just it's like a, a little thing. You run into you, those little things when trying to connect but, APIs, right? Adrian, it's a very good example. Now think, uh, it's not a trivia, but let's say you're a bank and you're running a lot of processes and they're interconnected and some of those processes are connected through prompt uh, instead of API. And those kind of API uh, calls are being um, called by prompt, so prompt to action or prompt to API. So there are so many things. For example, uh, we solve this problem. We have a specific dedicated model that does uh, prompt validation, that it gets the right uh, action and also gets the right output from a model or multiple models or each step between different models. In that case, you can ensure that uh, not just you have flexibility, but also you have reliability. Because having um, flexibility of prompting without having reliability of an output will not help you much uh, and, and until you run into into a problem that will cascade and uh, ruin the whole thing, the whole process. So there's this sausage needs to be eaten from both sides, uh, flexibility, but also reliability of the output. It seems like it'll make things a lot more resilient too. Exactly, you know, have, having that that flexibility, like like something can change, and the uh, the LLM can say, you know, get, for some of it can maybe adjust to it. In other cases, maybe it does its own debugging, right? Like like mm-hmm. uh, that's one of the most painful things today with software is you just get an error code. You know, something fails. It doesn't tell you why. You know, maybe now we can have more useful uh, error messages. I think I think like right now people are thinking about LLMs as like one big thing that can do everything. Uh, we at Zero Systems we believe that it's always going to be a family of models. There will be one kind of generic model that can do uh, the conversation with you because it's it's a wide as an ocean but deep as a puddle, right? It's always on a level of like 15 years old uh, type of knowledge. It can Google really fast and can get information very fast from a vector DB, but it doesn't have a specific knowledge uh, about specific domain. And there will be a set of smaller models uh, that are very good specialists in specific domains. Uh, let's say if you if you're automating things for accounting, of course the general model can can do a lot of you and for you and to help you with things you want to do. But then the specific model that can be uh, accessed through the uh, larger model can actually do things reliably and uh, effectively. So you can rely on that. Um, so those kind of sets of models that work together as an orchestra, that's the future. There will be no one big model to rule them all, never. Because if you make it bigger, the scale actually creates the same scale of problems, hallucinations and uh, processing power Sometimes it's like uh, too expensive to run the big model when you can squeeze it into a much smaller model and get the same results, even if not better. So that brings me to a good question that uh, Daniel raised in, in our previous interview: is you know how how do you use LLMs with with data sources that are constantly updating? You know how how, how do you how do you handle that when like, like we've heard that actually building you know, the technical process of, of uh, training one of these models and building it can be very 
time-consuming, uh, compute-expensive, and, and labor-expensive yep. if, if you've got to have humans uh, training it after you build it, yep. right? Yep. The fine-tuning. It's a, uh, it's a great question. So actually, multiple answers in one question here. So let's start with the compute. Uh, let's start with the data first. So, uh, and we already touched uh, that topic. If you have corporate data, which is unstructured, but you have a system set up that it does systematic data labeling, you don't have to ask people to do it, which is very uh, not cost, cost effective. It's expensive. But in this case, if a machine does that in a systematic way and you get this metadata, you have the data labeled, that's much uh, much more effective and less expensive. And in our case, for example, we even use uh, CPUs for inferencing, not GPUs. Um, next week, there is a case study uh, coming uh, for uh, with uh, Zero Intel and Active Loop when we basically showcase how CPUs, Intel CPUs, can be used to do the same work as GPUs. Yes, slower, but you don't need a real-time or faster uh, processing here when we talk about the labeling of the um, unstructured data. So on one hand, you have this enormous corpus of data, but if you use existing infrastructure and you use CPUs to process it, it's low cost and it's systematic. So you already kind of solve part of the problem. The second piece is how to uh, then, well, of course, you need to train the models and training models are really expensive. In this case, you need uh, GPUs. But if you are training a smaller model, that would be less less expensive. And uh, the larger model, big model, might not be needed to be retrained um, very often. Uh, you, you, can, you can have what you have. But smaller models that you add um, to your library of models when you need to automate or augment a new process, instead of retraining the big model to take on that specific process, you just train them uh, more specialized, smaller models and add it to the library. So in this case, the larger model will be tapping into the smaller models when uh, when um, it needs some specific uh, use case to be um, to be attacked. So in this case, it's a combination of those things, and that's where the orchestration piece. And the operating piece of the AI comes in play, and that's what we actually do for large enterprises. Because otherwise, it's going to be too expensive, too slow, and you'll need too many data scientists to kind of do it over and over again. It's not going to be very effective. I don't hear you. I don't remember why I'm muted, but uh, Sean, do you have any other questions we haven't gotten to yet? I think one of the things that I heard that was really insightful to me was that this this whole concept of a family of models. Um, you know, Alex, you were talking about these models are getting bigger; they're getting more expensive. It's getting tougher to scale them. And so you end up in the situation where a lot of companies are probably looking at, okay, what is the best model for us? What is the best AI system for us? And I think ultimately, as you mentioned, it's, it's not necessarily going to be going with a specific technology or even a corporate model, but figuring out the best way to get the best answer out of whatever that AI system or family of models is. And I, I think to me that, that, that really, uh, 
um, resonated with me as far as where we're headed and what we're doing. And there may be more specific or kind of niche models that help with different solutions that are very optimized for those. And I, I think that that was my probably my best takeaway from this. Thank you. Yeah. That's why we don't have uh, doctors that can do uh, to be a dentist and a brain surger, uh, surgeon at the same time. Well, technically, they can probably will not go for that uh, to that doctor to have uh, a brain surgery, right? Um, that's why specialization is the key. And of course, you can take your financial statement, put it into a large model like GPT-4 and ask to turn it into a poem uh, Shakespeare style. But and it will do it because that's 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 why it's big and why that's what's large model is. But if you're an enterprise, you probably would never ask the model to do that. Uh, it will not even come to your mind. But you'll take your financial statement and it will ask the model, a sp specialized model, to give you insights or where the uh, growth um, factors are hidden or where the costs are buried and like how to improve it. And in this case. Much smaller model, but trained on specific data sets, financial data set, will give you much better answer with no hallucination and much faster and a cheaper cost instead of uh, asking um, uh, GPT-4 to do that. Uh, and it doesn't mean that the large models, truly large models, don't have place. Of course they do. They have very good generalization models. But uh, uh, when you need to perform specific tasks, that's where you go to uh, the specialized model. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I think the other side of that, the other thing you were talking about is it sounds like uh, prompts are very important right now. They will they will likely be less emphasized, let's say. And hopefully, I think we probably will get to the point, it sounds like this is along the lines of what you're thinking as well, is that the prompts themselves will be less important as it is to try to explain what we want to the model or to, to the AI system. And the AI system will help us develop the best prompt for us, given that niche, given that circumstance, given what it understands about what we've asked before and maybe what it's looking for. And so maybe we're, we're looking at almost a system of systems where we have this sort of broker that will identify the best model to ask the best question and help us better define that, that question. Um, you, you know, there, there's a, a movie, uh, where the the person goes or or the AI or system goes um that that question I don't have an answer for it um could you ask a better question and then when the the, the person the character in the movie asks uh, the the right question uh then they get the perfect answer and I kind of feel like that's where we are right now that's it was, was from a uh, I robot it yeah, was exactly. So. And it was amazing. <laughs> exactly. But you, you tapped into a very interesting thing. Um, and that that's correct. And I think this orchestration of models is critically important because uh, that's where the, the value for the if we talk about enterprises, not the uh, consumers, but enterprises, that's the, where the value at the affordable cost is. Because right now everyone is jumping in and uh, kind of a, try not to think about the cost. But the cost is important because that's where the ROI is, and uh, that's going to be affordable when you when uh, systems are being built this way. And that's that's what we do actually at Zero, and that's uh, that's why I think this future is the combination of models trained on specific data, um, domain expertise uh, type of models that can be orchestrated by a larger model to to interface with the human. So, so one so of the I, things oh go ahead tyler well i have a very pointed question so the use case for the enterprise i think is pretty clear 
the enterprise user is hopping in using uh, generative AI to create materials, content. Um, you know, I personally use generative AI at least every other day at a minimum. Um, but I think I think what what is really going to be powerful is when it's an entire business analytics engine that helps you make smart decisions on the business as a whole, not necessarily mm-hmm. on any any individual contributors individual workload for a moment or a point in time right. but the more important question i say this jokingly to my other co-founders when am i going to get my personal digital assistant that knows everything about my personal life that i can have it prompt me every day say what i'm doing help me solve my individual problems i think that's my selfish my selfish ask uh you are not the far away from actually uh reality uh so I don't think people right now need this kind of a, a type of personal assistant that will be looking over the shoulder doing everything. But uh, definitely, and we're working in this direction as well. Uh, we are working on Action Transformer, um, and we already have products built on that. So when instead of kind of like large language models, when you can predict the next token, the next action can be predicted. Think of this. you You have a task. And you don't even know about the task. It might be an email coming into your inbox saying that you need to create a report. And the system reads it before you do, and it knows and can predict your next steps of what you would do to actually make this task accomplished. And it does that for you. Instead of predicting next talk, and it predicts your next actions, and it can predict five actions, 10 actions, until basically the job is done. I would say that's the future, especially for enterprises, because that would feel like absolutely black magic. When you just thought about something or you have something uh, in your to-do list, but the system already done that for you, knowing how you would personally do that. Because it already has access to all the data you have access to. It knows how you do things. Nothing stops it from basically mimicking the way you would click on buttons and you will kind of write a report and so on and so forth. So we're already working this direction and we have uh, pretty good results. Yeah, I think that's absolutely 100% true from a business perspective. But I also think that a mass adoption moment will be the day that you can buy that service for $20 a month, have it connect to your your personal Gmail, your personal calendar, your work calendar, and give you every, you know, your, your wife's calendar, your life calendar. Uh, all those daily activities are being completed in an automated fashion. That's the mass adoption moment between now and then. It's probably years away, but that's something I'm definitely looking forward to. Yeah, I don't think it's that much uh, far away, uh, considering how quickly things evolve. Uh, I can't predict when, but I think you're right. Uh, uh, mass adoption is going to be happening from uh, from the mass market, and that's, those are consumers and their daily lives. There will be a lot of companies that are going to be uh, working on that and helping um, individuals with their everyday lives, because work is just part of it. Yeah, yeah, I remember getting really excited. Uh, I forget the name of the um, soft keyboard uh, for for mobile app, but it had an option to where, and a lot of people didn't like this, you know, uh, but it had an option where it could read your email, and so it learns how you how you type, what kind of words you use, uh, you, you know, being in the cybersecurity industry or, or any industry, medical, whatever. There's all kinds of acronyms acronyms specific to your industry, maybe specific even to your company. And it's always irritating to be writing something, you know, and it replaces something very intentional that's proprietary to you or your company or something like that 
you know, tries to correct it, you know, to something mm-hmm. that that's a more general, general term. And I, I just thought that was like, I, I was happy to let it read all my email just so I don't have to keep correcting those things or, or have, have to teach, you know, the predictive text uh, that, no, this is a thing that I say, this is how I say it. And, we came and please, a long way from T9, yeah. T9 to what we have right yeah. now. So I... I <laughs> yep, yep, long way. So, so yeah, I mean, to take that all the way to predicting how you do different tasks or, you know, that, that there's somebody I want to keep in touch with on, on a regular basis and, and I haven't called them in a couple of months, um, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Uh, I, I'm with Tyler. I'm... I'm going to be on that side where I'm willing to give up some privacy to, you know, to to have an extension of my brain to to Adrian, do my I, will pro- when I know I'm going to forget it. It's going to be binary. It's not some of the privacy. To get that level, you have to give up all of your privacy. There will be no privacy at all because you can't do partially the, this kind of a thing. It's going to be giving yeah. up everything so you can get something. But, but as uh, a society, and I, think, I, I think our perception of privacy will also change. Yes, especially in the in the in the consumer space, not in enterprise, of course, but in a consumer space. I think it'll happen in both spaces because I don't, you know, as a society as a whole, haven't we already essentially given it up by putting all of our content in the cloud? Anyways, it's all owned by somebody else. It's all sitting on other people's servers. I don't have any of my personal stuff sitting locally anymore. I'm, my laptop's just a gateway to Google services and somebody else's services. What's the difference whether it's an AI engine that's connecting and collecting that or something else? The only, the primary thing I can think of is that it uses that corpus of my knowledge and shares it with others, and that's where the difficulty will become uh, apparent. But if you know you can create these AI-based systems that do have, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, we'll call them internal firewalls or guardrails of communications mm-hmm. between between people. Then you know how is that any different than using a SaaS service? Uh, it is not, but it's just like much deeper penetration. I'll give you an example. When enterprises, and again talking about enterprises, when enterprises implement or think about implementing those type of things like LLMs, and they say, "Well, we'll give it access to our internal data, uh, and that will be a model running uh, inside the security perimeter, and we'll give it access to the data. We're safe." And then they realize, wait a second, how about ethical walls? Does this uh, sales manager in Nebraska has the same access uh, to the same data as a CEO of a company? Uh, of course not. So even inside the organization, there should be guard rails and uh, ethical sure. walls and layers and layers. So uh, it's not just about one perimeter and everything is like uh, a socialism inside. Everyone shares with everyone everything. So there's so many components and this whole market is going to be evolving and new things, going to, new policies, new laws, um, a new concept going to be appearing. We're just at the very beginning of that process. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and and uh, that, that was a question we wanted to ask in one of the interviews today that we just didn't get to, uh, regulation of, of AI. You know, we've already seen uh, Sam Altman, um, you know, kind of starting to push for that. Kind of kind of interesting, kind of like the, the Coinbase of, uh, of AI, of generative AI, I guess. Coinbase was one that pushed very early on for, for regulation of, of crypto. But um, any final thoughts before we wrap here, Alex? I don't think we can put the cat back to the into the bag. So it's out. You can't control who is training models how, and it's going to be cheaper, faster, and better. 
uh, and uh, you will not need uh, so much money uh, as a year ago when you needed to train a model. And if we talk about specific models and um, specialized models, it's even cheaper. You can you can basically use uh, resources you already have. So I don't think it's uh, it's uh, possible to regulate it the way uh, other industries being regulated because it's super democratized. Um, but still, there should be some guardrails because right now it's basically like putting a nuclear reactor in the middle of the town and pushing the button to see if it works. And it's just a matter of time when bad, act, bad actors will use uh, or already might be using those new technologies to actually do much worse things that they were able to do before. Uh, but it's like with the gun regulation, you can't stop bad guys from having guns the same way you can't stop bad guys from having AI, uh, but you need to regulate it nonetheless to make sure it's harder for them to get uh, to the newest technologies. Uh, so I think regulation is coming and it will, uh, it will be there. We'll just need to see how it plays out. Whether or not it's enforceable is a different matter, right? Exactly. Yeah. All right. Awesome stuff. Uh, Alex, thank you so much for joining Enterprise Security Weekly today. This has been great. Thank you, guys. It was a pleasure. All right. And we'll be right back in a few moments with the weekly enterprise news. 